In this Climate Gen episode, I'm speaking with California Climate Tech CEO Dr. Ethan Cohen Cole about the impact the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank had on his business and the niche climate tech sector as a whole. Far from a 2008 financial domino effect, Ethan says this is a case of one particularly mismanaged institution, highlighting an unforeseen upside. In any conversation of this kind, it is critical to state clearly that all of this is a waste of time if anthropogenic carbon emissions are not reduced to zero in the shortest possible time. That is something that is clearly not happening now and something we should all push for. What piqued my interest in Capture 6 is the potential coupling with existing large-scale technology such as desalination of seawater. In a drier world, we urgently need to make sure we can supply water without further damaging ecosystems. The atmospheric burden of greenhouse gases is now so high that we're starting to breach critical thresholds in the Earth's system. We don't just need to stop burning fossil fuels, we need to accelerate the reduction of atmospheric carbon, down from the current levels of around 420 parts per million to well below 350 parts per million. Policymakers are not making the structural changes necessary for a system-wide downward shift of the emissions curve. In the next episode, I'm speaking with David Spratt in Australia about his new article charting the use and misuse use of the term climate emergency, as well as how do we reclaim and repurpose it as a means to getting out of this dire predicament of biosphere collapse. Thank you for listening. Ethan, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. Your business is called Capture 6. You specialize in direct air capture of carbon dioxide. Can you provide a snapshot of the technology, where you are in terms of funding and achieving your whole sort of business plan milestones and goals. Thanks, Nick. Happy to be here. Um, capture 6 is a direct air capture company. Our technology is based around the idea that we can take waste salt from whether it's desalination, brine, mining waste, uh, industrial salt waste products, convert that into a product that can then be used to capture CO2 from the air. And in the process of doing so, we mineralize the CO2 in the same continuous process and store the CO2 in the form of sodium or calcium carbonate in a permanent form. Um, in some contexts, we might reuse some of the outputs of that product, the outputs of that process in sort of the end product or some intermediate products. Where are we in general? We're about a year and a half old. Our approach to the world has been to focus on the methods that allow us to scale as quickly as possible um, on to be not surprising to listeners of this podcast that the world's in crisis and that we need to um, reduce and remove as much CO2 as possible, as quickly as possible. In creating the concept behind our business, we decided that the accelerated way to do so was not only to bring our own technology to market, but to do so in a way that um, took advantage of existing approaches, took advantage of existing machinery, equipment, partnerships um, that allowed us to build large-scale facilities right away. That allows us to sort of jump over the phase of figuring out whether or not something works in a lab, or whether or not a piece of equipment is going to operate the way we expect. Instead, we can deploy large facilities in the short run. We have raised some money in a seed round. We'll be doing an A round a little bit later this year. And we're also raising capital for a collection of different industrial facilities. So that capital is a little bit different than capital for a startup. Okay. And you, when you're using existing 
um, technology infrastructure to build on to. You're talking about desalination plants, is that correct? So there's two parts of that using existing technology. One part, and perhaps that's what you're asking, if we're going to help um, existing industries decarbonize, such as a desalination plant or an industrial facility, a petrochemical facility or something else, we might attach on or use some of their own infrastructure to help accelerate the process. However, there's another step to using existing technology. If you might imagine that the waste product from chemical factory or a pharmaceutical factory or a desalination plant is a collection of materials and embedded in those materials, such as the desalination brine waste, is a bunch of salt. So the existing technology for one portion of our process will be to clean up what that waste is and then just take out the salts and the water that we want for our own process and return some fresh water to the system. But the technology to do that, to process those waste products already exists. So we don't have a brand new way to process industrial waste. However, there are companies that already do that. We simply want to take it from form A and get it into form B so that we can use it for carbon capture. Okay. Um, and that's core to the method that we're talking about. The Using those existing approaches, companies that know how to process the waste as an input product or companies that know how to convert the sodium chloride solution we might end up with into an acid in a base, those exist already. And we would be foolhardy to think that we are going to somehow recreate whole new industries about how to process water in order to get to what we really want to be doing, which is capturing carbon dioxide. So our approach to that is to sort of draw on those existing partnerships and relationships. Okay. I just want to touch on the recent events because you obviously have been in the press quite a bit with the whole crisis that's gone on with the Silicon Valley Bank. What has been the impact on your business of this? Has it had any impact on you? Have you managed to move past it? Quite remarkably, and I can talk about why, but quite remarkably we found this has actually been an accelerant to our business. And so why is that? Uh, the initial impact of seeing that Silicon Valley Bank is going to go out of business and our dollars are in Silicon Valley Bank means that, that we didn't have access to our funds for about 72 hours. In retrospect, that's not debilitating for many companies or for us. Um, I do understand that some companies had payroll over the course of that 72 hours, which could have been particularly challenging. We did not. Um, but during those 72 hours, I spent quite a bit of time talking to counterparties, telling them, explaining them that this was a unique bank. This wasn't a crisis in the system. This wasn't a crisis of um, confidence in climate tech. And I heard that reflected back to me many, many times that investors that we've spoken with, both investors in our own company, as well as investors in other companies, showed minimal concern that this was a an impact on the climate tech in general. And I think that came both from their motivation to have an impact on the world, but also from their assessment of the economic pathway to successful decarbonization. So this was a very different type of economic event than 2008 or 2001 or this you know, SNL crisis. What we had here was one particularly mismanaged institution and more and more information has come out about how they didn't conduct appropriate risk management. They concentrated amongst a handful of clientele. I mean, there's sort of, you know, bad liquidity management, bad asset liability management, 
But that's not a reflection of the climate tech industry. And if you see one bad bank go under within a strong industry, we, the response to that instead is the crowding in of other resources, other banks, other lenders. And we saw that nearly immediately. So our experience with this, while well, you get that initial fill up of like, here goes our bank, you're, we were you know, quite enthusiastic to see the momentum that followed after. And sort of with each following day, I hear more and more about how this was an isolated, like, you know, problem bank. Okay, because there's something like 1,500 plus companies in this sector with Silicon Valley Bank. Would you say then that there's, in a way, that it's drawn some um, attention or focus on this sector and maybe allowed you to expand the conversation with other parties as a, a sort of consequence? That was our experience. I think it drew attention to the fact that climate tech is critical. And I'll speak only to climate tech here, not to some other industries. But particularly to climate tech, I think there was, if anything, a crowding in and renewed interest and awareness of the need for financing for small climate tech companies and mid-sized climate tech companies. That financing is important. It does drive much of what we do. We need everything from banking to lending to growth capital to infrastructure capital. And Silicon Valley Bank was one of many companies that did things like that. They had an outsized presence in the Bay Area. But what's been remarkable about this time period is that after that initial shock, I think the rest of the um, funding community and investment community has realized that there's plenty of opportunity here and an opportunity to crowd in and grow the sector. So for those 1,500 companies, my heart reaches out to those that had payroll troubles for those 72 hours. And hopefully they have now recovered, given they got all their money back, and hopefully things could continue um, for them without any significant financial disruption. But after Monday morning, everybody's funds were back. And this now became an ongoing question rather than a specific Silicon Valley Bank question. Yeah, it's interesting because I think in the in the initial shock phase, there was a sort of a heart sinking feeling in as much as that this is a, a sector we need to scale <laughs> at a pace and the, the thought that maybe it, it was getting a real setback was a problem but what you're saying is that it's actually there's a sort of rebound to that and maybe it's been a sort of long-term beneficial there was a bit of conflation between silicon valley bank's role as a banker in the bay area to a wide range of startups and what that might mean for the different types of funding that are needed in the climate tech space. So the types of funding that need in the climate tech space indeed look quite a bit different than a SaaS startup or even a biotech startup, right? The funding sources and the infrastructure capital needed are really quite different. Why is that important? Silicon Valley Bank is not an infrastructure bank, never has been, nor was it particularly a climate bank. It also lent to oil and gas interests. And so there's a, a misconception, I think, both at that moment, and you could imagine in the heat of like the moment, people say, oh my goodness, they fund startups, this must affect climate tech. But also I think a misunderstanding about what his role was and what banking is needed to grow climate tech. If you want to build a billion dollar facility that captures CO2 from the air, or you want to build wind farms, Silicon Valley Bank wasn't the provider of that capital, so it wasn't their role. And, or at least they didn't enter into that in any significant way that would have been disrupted, even if 
it were like symptomatic of the industry. So I, I think there's a little bit of a conflation of the issues. What we did see with Central Valley Bank was it was the banker for its collection of venture capital firms and their funded entities for the cash flow needs of a set of small companies that are residing mostly in the Bay Area. So that's not a systemic problem, though. Yeah, that's like a short term cash flow issue. And we've seen bank after bank flood in. I mean, I must have gotten 30 emails and 10 calls from bankers over the weekend. Do you want a banking account? Do you want a credit card? Do you want a loan? Right. That's fundamentally different than what happened in 2008, where everyone fled. Right. The first wind meant nobody called. Everybody disappeared. Sure. Um, sure. So it really was a very different kind of event. Based on what you've just said, you've had a shock and it's shown you that that there is a need for this kind of facility that allows you to scale up to a billion dollar carbon capture company. What is it the field needs is the same thing as it needed before the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, which is a collection of different financing investment at all different phases. And I think if anything, that collapse simply identified to the rest of the entities that are interested in engaging in this space that they should engage more they should fund additional amounts, that they should uh, dig in. And uh, if anything, in our case, that's expanded our opportunity set by sort of raising the flag that climate remains important and a growth opportunity. And if you look at direct air capture specifically, uh, it was on a webinar the other day and it was estimating the the rate of growth that you needed to see in novel technology in direct air capture. I mean, it was phenomenal it was something like 40x per year or something for over a decade and when you then take something that's to me makes me skeptical that we can do it but we go down to to where you are how do you look at that problem and say yeah i think we've got a chance here how do you um in a sort of realistic way rationalize that so that exact problem is was what drove how we created the firm and the economic and business model around what Capture 6 is doing. I agree with you that that sort of multiples of growth and this the speed at which we need to do that sort of growth begs the question whether or not you can take lab technology, get it out, get it to demo, get it to pilot, get it to infrastructure, and then multiply that infrastructure fast enough to make a difference to the world. So how do you solve that problem? And we created our economic model and our business exactly to solve that, which is we don't think that it's possible to start in a lab if we want to get this done in time. The only way to get it done in time is to be able to build half a million tons, a million ton removal facilities starting almost immediately. And so how do you get to that? If you need to do that with Partners that already know how to build large-scale facilities, even if it's a slightly different kind. You need to do that with technology that already exists, even if it was used for a slightly different application. And you need to simply put them together in a way that can be built, financed, and operated now, or we're we're simply not going to capture enough carbon to make a difference. That's Capture 6's model. We operate as a capital light developer, integrator, and um ip owner and we work with a collection of large corporate partners and financing entities in order to build large facilities and that's a somewhat different approach than our colleagues are taking but we think that's 
effectively the only shot we have to get there. I'm not saying it's the best approach, but it's the only one that we think could work if we're going to get there in time. Okay. And you just use the words immediately and now. And when will we see the first facility operating? When will Capture 6 start drawing down carbon? Yeah. A wide collection of facilities that are in our pipeline, many under are already undergoing engineering, and we would expect to have operational facilities certainly by next year and more after that. In other conversations I've had, the people talking about different technology approaches tend to sort of say, well, you know, if we can't get to a gigaton, a billion tons of drawdown, we're not really interested in pursuing it. Is that a, the kind of figure that you're you're scaling to? Agreed. Um, we have a, a global problem and we need to get to hundreds of millions of tons, gigatons of removal, or like you said, it's not worth it. We should be deploying the capital in some other way in order to attempt to make a difference whether that's sustainable fuels or it's, you know, additional solar and wind power or other renewable energy. That is, we have to be deploying capital in all of those areas really, really quickly. And we have to be decarbonizing other industries really quickly. I'll emphasize, I don't think carbon removal is the only solution. It's just one part of an enormous number of things that we need to do. Always have to throw that in. There's sure, no absolutely. Way. The answer here is not to simply remove carbon from the air and continue business as usual. So yes, if you can't get to a scale of carbon removal that makes a significant difference, we should be deploying capital somewhere else. If you're looking next year at having some plants in operating somewhere, what is a significant milestone for you in drawdown? You mean in terms of numbers or in terms yeah. of... Yeah, like, numbers, okay. yeah. Just sort of tons. Um I'm I'm reticent to um, to broadcast specific numbers or timelines. There, a lot of my colleagues have gotten over their skis a little bit, um, so I'd rather just demonstrate it that when we're able to do it, that the 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 world will see that when we're when we've gotten there. Um, and I don't mean to, you know, hide my cards. I just I'm um, I'm reluctant to to overpromise and underdeliver. Okay. We'd rather. All right. You've talked very well about the technology in terms of, you know, the the pluses, the way that it can work. It can be deployed in in scale through working with partners. What are the real challenges? What's the stuff you don't say to the investors, but that you discuss with the engineers? <laughs> What's the oh, hard the engineering part? challenges? I was going to give you some financing challenges, <laughs> but I'll do my best to give you a little snippet of both of those. I I do think it's important important for the financial industry, for lenders, for investors to lean in more on mid-sized um, project finance to enable second, third, fourth of a kind facilities and um, do the creative financing that be necessary in order to make those things a reality more quickly. I think that would be really important for a number of my colleagues that have some existing capabilities and are struggling with, you know, pilot scale facilities or their next generation facilities. We're going to have a hard time leaping to the very large scale if the financing structures are fully reliant on, you know, venture capital based equity finance. And I just on ask that. if there's any way the policy could help in that in terms of establishing any frameworks or anything to do with carbon Question. markets that might be able to assist in making it more attractive for investors? Uh, there are some things that sort of fit that sort of story. So for example, um, 
the U.S. DOE has something called the Loan Program Office. They tend to target somewhat larger infrastructure projects, but they provide guarantees to um, bank financing. California has a similar program, which they provide a, uh, for somewhat smaller projects, a partial loan guarantee for climate tech development. Capture 6 was just approved under that program. It's one of the reasons I know about it. Similar types of programs exist elsewhere in the world. And I think those can be quite valuable because it enables the financial sector, which could be somewhat more um, resistant to taking risk to have um, those programs in place to support that slight additional risk taking. Things such as the IRA or carbon markets could also be helpful, but I think they're going to take a couple more steps of, I don't want to call it financial market innovation, but some intermediaries to enable those credits, not just to flow to oil and gas interests, but actually to promote growth of more complicated technologies is somewhat challenging for some of my colleagues in the industry to access IRA funding if they don't have a long-term offtake agreement. The long-term offtakes agreements exist because the financial market intermediaries haven't done a good job establishing those. So there's are parts of the market that don't exist that policymakers could help facilitate, but I think there's a number of additional steps to get there. I know your question was about engineering, and I answered about finance, <laughs> which is an interest of mine. I'm a former financial person, but the, on the engineering side, um, I don't think that today Capture 6 has significant engineering challenges to overcome. All companies, whether small or large, have an ongoing need for research and development and optimization of engineering approaches, cost reductions, and it will be important for the, the industry in the medium run to continue those aggressively. So even when somebody reaches certain cost targets or infrastructure targets, like you could imagine that 20 years from now, you expect it to be much, much cheaper. Yeah. I was particularly interested in the, I mean, I mentioned at the beginning, the the sort of desal connection, because we're moving yeah. into a, a sort of water stressed world. And it seems that desalination is going to be quite a major part of it. Even during the last COP, there was a talk about the huge rollout of facilities in Egypt for desalination, running off renewable energy. And I was just curious, is that is that, do you think that your kind of technology could become part of that rollout, which would then make it not only part of the water solution, but part of a direct air capture and carbon capture solution? Significant interest from water treatment and desalination partners around the world from Middle East to Australia to the US and East Asia. Part of the reason for that is indeed, yes, we are part of a desalination solution because we can use up that salt as opposed to dumping it in the ocean. And the other reason is that we can increase the productivity of desalination plants in order they return more water per unit that they pull from the ocean. It's part and parcel of the of like the mechanism and our technology. So those two together, we found significant interest from water partners. And we do think it's part of the sort of global solution that resources should be reused. So if you're pulling seawater and it's got all of that salt, it's a shame to dump it back in the ocean. If there's a cheaper and better solution that could use it for something like carbon removal, that's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? That's the, that's the solution for our economy is that we could actually do both of those things with the same set of resources. And really just to end on, we've talked about sort of the challenges we face more broadly and the scaling, I, I still say, call it a scaling problem. And when you look out to 2030, how do you assess it from your background, from your from your expertise of, of how well do you think we're going to do when we get there? Because your technology 
is is widely discussed in places like the UNFCCC or policy makers like the sound of it, but there, a lot of the scientists are skeptical about it. What's your personal assessment of it? And you say our technology, do you mean direct air I, capture? I mean direct air capture as opposed to just capture. your technology, yeah. Sure. Um, so I wouldn't be in this field if I weren't quite bullish on the chance that it, direct air capture or integrated solutions have on having an impact. You've set an aggressive bar to how much of an impact it could have by 2030. And I think we have a legitimate shot at having a large impact in the next seven years. I think it's going to take both continued aggressive movement by organizations such as ours, but also increased leaning in amongst the financial community, the lending community, the investment community, as well as policymakers for us to hit targets that will matter to the world. So it's going to take, I think, a little bit more than indicating that there's a new carbon market or an announcement of willingness to lend, but actually some much more proactive efforts to move projects one by one across the finish line. And that's where the real hard work is, right? It's easy to say, in theory, we'll lend to a project and we have money available at a lar- you know, some large bank institution. In practice, yeah. there are projects available to finance and so in practice, can those lenders, you know, step up to the table, take a little bit extra risk to avoid the catastrophe that's facing us. But if they do, I think we have a fantastic opportunity. So you would really like to see a sort of equivalent of a, a Marshall's Marshall Plan deployment phase for the next seven years, if we were going to try and meet these kinds of challenges. I, I certainly like that concept. I think, unfortunately, the policy world is probably far from Amazing. that sort of action step. And But certainly, I think that would have a much higher chance of being successful if industrialized country leaders or other national governments decide that this were a national industrial policy. We as a company or even very large companies can't replicate that. In the absence of that sort of unified governmental action, I still think that the industrial community and the corporate community and the financial community actually can deploy large-scale solutions that can have an impact. My comment before was I think they probably need to lean in a little bit more on incremental risk-taking. I'm speaking to lenders here. Incremental uh, corporate action. I'm speaking to corporate players. Take a little bit more risk on the margin that you might would do under you know non-standard conditions. So lean in a little bit. I do think we have an exceptional chance to make a difference by 2030. Well, that's a very good place to end on. And it'll be really interesting to see how you develop over the next few years. So good luck with it. And uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate your time. Pleasure talking to you.